This is Car Expert. If Ford gave it a right-hand drive option and Ford Australia were to import the Bronco, they would sell every single one. I would venture to say that it could potentially outsell the Jeep Wrangler. The other big benefit now as well is they've actually been able to integrate seven seats within the Outlander PHEV. The stuff that I didn't like about the H6 for me personally would be a deal breaker. The tech and some of the drivability niggles. Hello to you, William Stopford. Hello, Mandy. And hello, James Wong. Hi, everyone. Uh, now, you're pretty excited because you love hot hatches and so do I. And I think, do you like hot hatches, Will? I do. Great. So we're all in the perfect company then. Um, <laughs> we've got a comparison coming up featuring two hot hatches. Uh, what are they, Jay? Well, um, it, it's great news and also sort of sad news because one of the entrants in this hot hatch comparison is the updated Ford Fiesta ST, which has been killed as quickly as it's been updated <laughs> because um, very recently Ford announced that um, within the next couple of months, the Fiesta ST and the Focus ST will sadly be exiting our market stage left. That's the bad side, right? You exit stage, yeah. left, stage yeah. right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, one of the issues is that because the Fiesta and Focus ST are sourced out of Europe um, and there's ongoing supply and component issues over in that region that it's just getting increasingly difficult for companies like Ford to bring cars here. And because those two specific variants are quite low volume, it probably just didn't stack up from a business case perspective. So we've managed to get our hands on one. Um, we'll obviously do a review of it and we're planning on doing a comparison with the Hyundai i20N, which um, I did the launch of and we've had a few subsequent reviews where, you know, it's pretty well regarded amongst our team as well as others. So it'll be a really interesting um, comparison given the Fiesta has previously been like, you know, the fun king in that um, junior hot hatch segment. Yeah. Uh, I will be definitely putting my hand up to at least help whether I write it or not is, is another thing. But <laughs> I'll def I'm hoping that they give us a green one because that color is really, really cool. And obviously, you know, you can see my water bottle in the, in the, in the video. Um, those for green. you, those listening to the podcast that um, can't, obviously can't see what we're doing. I've got this very bright green bottle for my birthday and I'm just <laughs> using it <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> Um, it's actually funny that you talk about getting a couple of hot hatches this week down in Melbourne because I just picked up today an Abarth 595 Competizione. Um, and that's actually my first time driving one of those. So I'm already uh, realizing that driving position is just as bad as people said it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing is extremely loud. So I'm yeah. looking at that over the next week. Yeah, the competition is one of, you know, I remember I reviewed that car a really long time ago when that facelift first launched and I had one with the carbon bucket seats and as ridiculous and impractical as that car was, I almost cried when I had to give the keys back because I, it's so much fun and just everyone stares at you and goes like, oh my God, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, what color is it, Will? It is, oh, I have the key fob right here, a, a podium blue. Oh, that sounds what, like a nice what color. What color is that? Is it yeah, like dark it's, it's or It's like right? this matte bright blue. Um, it looks oh, fantastic. Yes, it does. Um, but I just noticed it, the, the car is no longer on Abarth's website. <laughs> so I'm just following Ooh. up on that one. Um, but, yeah, look, it's really interesting. Obviously, I've only driven it for about 10 minutes at this point, so it hasn't had a time to grow on me just yet. Um, does it but still I'll, have the G-Force meter? Uh, I believe it does. Uh, I will yeah. make sure to uh, take it to some uh, mountain roads on the weekend and, and put it through its paces. All right. So, um, yeah, keep your eye on the site for that um, 
hot hatch comparison coming soon. Time to talk this week's car news. Hello, Jack Quick. Hey, Mandy. How are you? Really good, thank you. Now, let's start off with this pretty cool news story. New Zealand developed track Hypercar will be entering production. <laughs> yeah, God, it looks a bit crazy if you've seen any of the images um, in the story that I wrote. So yep. it's this car uh, called the Roden F0, which sounds as otherworldly as it looks. So, um, it looks this like a Batmobile. Model, yeah, I was just about to say, I was I had down the bottom <laughs> this year, a huge Batmobile vibes <laughs> is, what I, yeah, yeah. is what I see from that. And Scott also mentioned when I was writing the story, it's a, it has a little bit of like speed race about it as well or that kind of like weird kooky design in all honesty just to kind of make the car look weird but also make it as fast as the fast as possible but also look fast too so on um, this f0 is uh, the second model to come from Roden and um, it follows on from a car called the RZ which is like an open wheeler f1 looking car which is essentially um, a car that was developed as part of a, a Lotus program that Lotus no longer wanted and uh, the company called Roden picked up and produced this f1 looking car so this um, f0 that I'm talking about today is the kind of follow-up to this car car and um, it's aimed at being the fastest car around track in the world. Jesus. (laughs) And um, so if you're not familiar with Roden, because I know that I wasn't before I started writing this story, um, it's founded by an Australian tech entrepreneur called, uh, his name is David Dicker, and um, he must have a lot of money and because he's just producing these crazy cars um, that, I don't know, it's just beyond my comprehension. I, I don't know if it would be possible to make this car, but as I've, as I wrote in the story, it is coming to production. Um, so 27 examples of this uh, Roden F0 are going to be produced and all of them are going to be uh, powered by a 4-litre twin-turbo V10 engine uh, with an electric motor producing total system outputs of... 865 kilowatts and 1,026 newton meters. And um, it has a projected top speed of 360 kilometers per hour. I haven't got be- got to the best part either. Um, so it uh, proportion-wise um, in size comparison, it's roughly the same size as a Mercedes Maybach S-Class, but here's the best bit. It only weighs 700 kilograms. So it's extremely lightweight with so much power and it's huge and um, it's capable of also producing 4,000 or 4 tonnes of downforce. So it's going to be an absolute beast on the track. Um, If you ever see it, it'll probably go past you that quick, you won't even notice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yes, it's um, also aimed at beating other kind of F1-derived more road car-esque, uh, like a Mercedes AMG one and also the Aston Martin Valkyrie. But um, I want to know, guys, is this is this too much? What do you think about the Roden F0? I just love one of our commenters who said, can you imagine the average driver in this at the track? They would launch themselves into orbit on the first corner. 
<laughs> it's just an insane bit of kit, isn't it? It just looks like a spaceship that's been made. It, it makes me think of like all those Hot Wheels games or those futuristic um, movies that we would have watched as we were kids. Um, I don't know how if this was mentioned in their um, like comms materials, but F Zero, I believe, is a reference to an old Nintendo game. That isn't that the Captain Falcon game on? F-Zero, is that right? The little the spaceship racing game? I'm pretty sure it is. Ooh, there was like a racing game just- on there. Yeah, um, so the really, really cool stuff. The numbers are insane. The price is mm. just as insane. It was like multi-million dollar piece of kit. Yeah, 1.8 million pounds. Um, but that was, yeah, that's also, uh, it's just insane. Everything about this car is insane. Yeah. <laughs> Even if I sat in it, I might bend it in half because it's only 700 kilos. The poor chassis might go as I sit in. (laughs) As we've been uh, mentioning over the past couple of weeks, Jack, the BYD Atto 3 EVs are hitting Australia right now. Yeah, very, very heavily anticipated. Um, as I said in the podcast last week, the, the people that love BYD really love BYD and, um, Here's the best thing that actually here. <laughs> so finally, um, yeah, that's right. So uh, the first truckloads of the BYD Addo Three have hit Australia, and uh, BYD claims that it has a total of four thousand sales banked already. And um, it also says that um, it can produce uh, can produce up to three thousand per per month um, going forward. So if this happens, uh, BYD is going to become almost like the, the top a uh, second top selling um, electric vehicle. A, te- a second top selling uh, automaker in EV sales um, just below Tesla. So this is a big deal and the cars are already coming in. And um, it also says that our deliveries are going to be starting this month, obviously, because the, the trucks are here, the cars are ready, people have ordered them. <laughs> and um, another thing to mention as well is kind of goes hand in hand with the BYD Auto 3 is that um, Tesla Model Y deliveries have also started too. And um, as you might have seen, uh, Paul picked up his Model Y uh, late last week. Um, you might have saw a photo where he's all happy with his Y balloon. Um, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, it's a, a big moment for Australian uh, Australian EVs. I feel like it's going to um, kind of pick up uh, now that there are two different, uh, two more EVs available in Australia. Obviously, they are at different price points entirely, but um, they're both SUVs and they're that sought-after body style that um, consumers really want right now. Um, But I want to know, guys, are you surprised that BYD made it to this point? Uh, Yeah, look, I think some of us were perhaps a little bit sceptical when BYD models were first announced for Australia because the whole pitch was, oh, we're going to sell them online. And um, then there was talk of only bringing a certain number in and it just seemed like a bit of an unconventional sales model. They they released a, a they, they previewed a van that they were going to introduce and then they previewed some weird people movery looking wagon thing. And it just seemed like they were making a lot of promises back then and it didn't seem to actually measure up to what was actually happening with the brand um, under EV Direct's uh, distributorship. Is that a word? Um, but now <laughs> they've got this deal with Eagers to actually sell um BYD vehicles through conventional dealers. They're not walking away from the whole online model, but they've, they seem to have changed their strategy a little bit to a more conventional strategy. And 
that I think was the right call. But there's also no getting around the fact that there is so much demand. EV sales may only account for a very small percentage of the overall uh, car market in Australia, but there is so much demand for an affordable EV, as we've seen with Tesla Model 3 sales going through the roof. This is obviously a lot cheaper than that. Um, so it will be very interesting to to see how the brand goes in Australia. I'm actually curious to check an Auto 3 out uh, myself in person. I know they've got one up here at the Indrapli Auto Mall. I think it's still there. So I need to check it out because I've seen, I've been covering this brand for a while now and I, <laughs> I keep seeing the same photos <laughs> and I really want to actually see it in person and then of I'm course just, drive it i've just noticed that they've actually written build your dreams on the no, on the tailgate it's not the only Ooh. poor design choice they've made it's actually a pretty good looking suv overall like it is i mean yeah. externally but there are very weird little design elements there i think um yeah we'll see some of i know that the seal that they've previewed um that's pretty much locked in for australia that looks a little bit more conventional inside and out so i think that might uh, but i think it's just this build your dreams across the tailgate uh well i'm sure like everyone else here i'm surprised that they've actually managed to a get the amount of orders that they've gotten and, and also deliver on the promise of getting this many cars here because as will um, correctly pointed out previous efforts to get BYD vehicles in here have either been very low volume or very and or very short-lived so the fact that there's um, been so much interest in the Addo 3 and you know you see it in our comments all the time a lot of people are commenting on reviews of very conventional forty to fifty thousand dollar cars that you know nameplates that we all know and love um, you know from everything from a Mazda CX-5 to a you know CRV various sedans and sport cars where they just go like, oh, 40 grand, 50 grand, I can buy BYD Auto 3 for that money. So why wouldn't you just go electric? It seems that people who are interested in electric vehicles are not as tied to brands or, you know, legacy reputation as we've seen with a lot of other cars. Um, you know, you see it with Tesla. Tesla was before the Model, before the model S, no one really knew who they were and, and it's really been driven into this cult stardom sort of thing for, for better or for worse. It depends on who you speak to. But, um, you know, you look at the way that a lot of people shop for EVs now and it's more based on what you can get for your money. And, you know, it's it's a pretty compelling case on paper when you see the size of the vehicle, how many features it um, fits in. And, you know, for with all the normal manufacturers jacking up their prices so much lately, it actually comes across looking like a bargain. So, look, we'll just have to see how the vehicles go once they hit the road, you know, can they handle an Aussie summer? We don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) EV buyers seem to really do their research as well um, because, uh, uh, James, you're exactly right. All of these people commenting um, saying, oh, yeah, check out Nato 3. It's like, how did you even hear about it? (laughs) Direct doesn't advertise it conventionally. You know, there's no giant billboards up for it. You don't hear radio ads for it. So that there's already so much buzz for a brand that you would think nobody's ever heard of. Now, BYD obviously is a big player in China. They supply batteries for a lot of companies. They're backed by Warren Buffett. Like it's it, they're they're a big deal, but you kind of wouldn't expect the average kind of Australian to to have heard of them. So that there is a very um, strong following for it already when the, the mm. brand hasn't started actually selling this vehicle here yet is is interesting. We'll just have to see how uh how they you know stand up mm. uh we're going to stick to chinese evs next jack with the mg4 hatch could this be uh, australia's cheapest ev next year yeah it's funny moving on from byd onto uh, this car in particular uh so the mg4 
could it steal the BYD Addo 3's thunder <laughs> is the big question yeah. that's over the, over the MG4's head right now. So um, pricing for the MG4 has been revealed um, in the UK. Overseas, it is uh, priced from around £26,000, which a a direct conversion is roughly uh, $45,000 Australian. Um, But that's not the figure to to look at in particular because there's a whole list of things why pricing in the UK won't necessarily reflect Australian pricing. But the big thing to look at is the difference between the the pricing between the MG4, which is the little hatchback that I'm talking about, and the MGZS EV, which is the small SUV that's currently on sale in Australia and is one of the the cheapest uh, electric vehicles on sale locally. um, in in the in the UK, the MG4 is roughly six thousand dollars cheaper, um, and if this carries over, this kind of um, pricing carries uh, price difference should say uh, carries over to Australia. We could see uh, the MG4 hatchback electric hatchback priced at around forty thousand um, dollars, yeah. which it would make it the cheapest EV in Australia, and it is coming as well uh, in the first half of twenty twenty three at this stage. And um, just a quick thing, a couple of things to bring up about the MG4, if you're not familiar with it already. Um, it is a ground-up um, EV that's a similar size as the Volkswagen Golf. And um, there are two different variants available overseas with different battery sizes and electric motor powers. It has range up to 450 kilometres. And um, MG at this stage aims to sell 150,000 of these in the first full year. So they've got big, big hopes and big expectations uh, for this uh, MG4. I want to know, guys, will this be popular in Australia? Are you you noticing a theme here? So we've been talking about BYD, Auto 3, MG4, ZSEV, Tesla Model 3, Model Y, Polestar 2. They're all made in China. Um, Mm. And obviously, that is no longer the impediment that it used to be. I think if you go back five, certainly 10 years ago, if somebody said, oh, here's a great new car, it's made in China, people would go, no, thank you. Um, But now, Australia's best-selling EV comes out of China. And all of these, uh, you know, uh, cars that are vying for that throne are also coming out of China. So, it's interesting. I think the MG4 looks genuinely to be quite a good-looking package. I think MG's probably had a few more runs on the board than, than BYD at this at this point because the ZSEV has been on sale sale for a little while here. Um, MG's had more of an export presence than, than BYD has. So um, I'll be very, very curious to see um, what, it, what it's like to drive. Do you think it'll be um, successful, Joe? I think if it's priced in the vicinity of what we think it might be, it could be a game changer because for the longest time, especially in our market, you know, in Europe they have electric versions of the Volkswagen Up and the Peugeot 208 and things like that. That would be in the equivalent of our thirty-five dollars to $40,000 range, some, even cheaper in some cases. And so I feel that, you know, one of the biggest hurdles to electric vehicle or electrified vehicle in general uptake in Australia is just the lack of affordable options. You think about, you know, I feel like the younger generations are are generally more environmentally conscious. And when you think about people in their, you know, mid, late 20s, maybe early 30s looking to buy a car outright, 
in the vein of this, they're not going to be looking for something that's super premium if they can avoid it. So, mm. you know, you think about how Toyota changed the game by making hybrids affordable. Um, and I feel like this is what the Chinese brands are doing with electric vehicles. It's not no longer, you know, two, three times the price of the equivalent petrol car. You can get into a, you know, if, the, if it's 40, 45 grand, you can get into an MG4 for a similar price as a high spec Volkswagen Golf or Mazda 3. So, you know, that's a, that's a huge change that um, could really be successful here. And it could soon be a three-way slug fest between Chinese brands because you'll have MG tag teaming with the with the four and the ZSEV. You've got BYD with the Auto three and more models to come, including a more affordable hatchback. And then you've also got GWM uh, that's planning to bring the Aura brand here with its little uh, cat or good cat or funky cat or crazy cat or whatever it's called, little electric hatchback. Uh, so. People have been clamoring for affordable EV options for a while now, and now it looks like we, we might get a, a kind of a glut all at once. And it does beg the question, how will these vehicles uh, impact your kind of your legacy uh, Japanese and Korean brand models? So you've got Kia Niro EV, Nissan Leaf, Hyundai Kona Electric. None of them you would really consider particularly affordable um so when you've got these cheaper chinese models coming in you've got people that are more willing to accept a chinese brand than they were previously you know i just wonder what's going to happen sales wise to those vehicles Indeed. And the last story we're going to talk about, I love the photos of this. I just wish it would come here, though. The Ford Bronco on Bronco Sport is going to get some retro heritage treatment, Jack. That's right, Mandy, and I freaking love it. It's so cool. Uh, so Ford, yeah, 100%. So Ford has given uh, the Bronco family some retro flair. Um, so there are different heritage uh, additions uh, uh, to both the Bronco and uh, the Bronco Sport um, that pay homage to the original Bronco um, back from the 1960s. Uh, so the Bronco in particular, it gets a, a two-tone uh, paint job uh, with white wheels, uh, white white roof. Goodness, try and say that quickly. It's a bit of a tongue twister. White roof, wheels, and also a grill uh, with red lettering on it. And um, on the inside also gets plaid cloth seats and heaps of white. So it's just like white everywhere, inside and out. And um, it's a similar treatment uh, for the Bronco Sport where it gets a whole heap of white exterior elements. And then also on the inside, uh, there are plaid cloth seats. And there's also an 80s-inspired Navy Pier instrument panel. <laughs> and um, so if you haven't seen any any of these cars before, make sure to check them out uh, on the website. They look freaking sick. Um, all of these different colors, they're kind of like a pastel-y uh, toned throughout all of them. And um, they look so, so cool. But um, as you said, Mandy, they're not going to be coming to Australia. <laughs> so that's, that's a, the most disappointing aspect of this. Um, as you would know, uh, Ford Australia said that it uh, hasn't said it's going to be bringing the Bronco anytime soon, um, even though it is based on the same platform as the Ranger. And um, that's just so disappointing. I it's just such a missed opportunity in my eyes because um, look how much fun Ford US in the US is having with the Bronco right now. You get all these cool different uh, heritage editions. Um, but what do you guys think? 
Do you think this is cool or am I just weird? No, they're awesome. <laughs> I, I don't know anybody out there who would say that they're not awesome. And I think the Bronco, to me, it, it still, every time I look at a photo of one, it, it looks like a concept car that has managed to go from concept to production with like no changes. It looks amazing. And I would say that if Ford gave it a right-hand drive option and Ford Australia were to import the Bronco, they would sell every single one and it would – I. I would venture to say that it would probably it could potentially outsell the Jeep Wrangler if it was sold here. Um, the Bronco Sport, I mean, that's based on the same platform as the Escape. It's obviously not as exciting. It's not as um, adventure ready as the Bronco is, but it's it's got the look down pat. And I think that if we had the option to have that here, I think it would sell a lot better than depending on how it's priced. It would sell a lot better than the Escape, which looks, you know, kind of generic crossover. So these are awesome. Kudos to Ford for making the most out of the Bronco and the Bronco Sport. Um, and wow, uh, yeah, I know. We just really need to get them here. Yep, I don't disagree with anybody. <laughs> the Bronco is basically, especially the, the latest one, and the, the, the latest Bronco is basically the American Defender. And, um, like I know that there's the Wrangler, but in terms of how I feel like the Bronco, there's just something about it because it's sort of a newish thing. You know, Wrangler's been around for ages, Defender's been around for ages, but the new Defender sort of changed it. It was that retro modern thing, and I feel like the Bronco does a really good job of that too. There's a lot of new stuff in it, and it looks really cool. But it, yeah, like Will said, it's kind of like that concept rebirth of a of an icon or a classic that's made it to production with very limited changes from you know the sketches. I think it's really cool. It's a shame that they don't bring it here. I'm pretty sure that when they first released it in America, they sold out for three years, which is probably why they can't get any here for now. Um, there's also that Bronco Raptor, which looks absolutely manic. Um, so. You never know. Ford, Ford Australia, given my um, time working with them, they can be quite secretive with their product plans and then, you know, surprise you <laughs> in a few years' time. I remember when we covered the Puma launch, for example, we went nuts over the fact that they had this cute little crossover that had some, you know, throwback lineage and then two, three years later they just suddenly said, oh, yeah, we're bringing it, by the way. So you never know once because – um, the production is centralized in America and therefore it's, you know, left-hand drive heavy. They'd probably be prioritizing North America and, you know, the Middle East. But then once the initial rollout has sort of completed, maybe there might be room for right-hand drive production. You never know. I sincerely hope so because I know that, um, you know, you might think that other right-hand drive markets might not be as, as interested in this vehicle, but sometimes stuff like this actually does surprisingly well, if still in a niche way in markets like the UK and Japan. So, I'm, I sincerely hope they do develop a right-hand drive version and I hope this doesn't end up on the long list of cool Ford products we don't get like Puma ST, Mustang Mark e uh, Explorer, etc. Are you going to buy one, Will? Uh, no, I think this kind of capability is wasted on me. <laughs> I'd be more inclined to buy an Explorer, but look, I would love to see these on our roads, 100%. I feel like you're going to buy a T-shirt. That's what you'll be buying. <laughs> if you would like to check out those photos of, of the Bronco, please do carexpert.com.au. And Jack, quick thank you. Thanks, Mandy. The new 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid is here with a bit of a price increase, but is it worth that price rise. Paul Marrick is the man to ask because he's driven it. Hello, Paul. Hello, Mandy. Excellent question. Yes. So it, I suppose it's a new generation, so there's a lot of things that are new, but is it also actually worth that price rise? 
Yeah, look, I, I think that the price rise has come with a much bigger battery. So it's increased uh, to 20 kilowatt hours in capacity, which is almost double what it was previously. Uh, the other big benefit now as well is they've actually been able to integrate seven seats within the Outlander PHEV as well. So previous um, to this, they weren't able to get a seven seat capacity. So I think for families who need that occasional use third row, it uh, it definitely helps. It's obviously not for adults. We Well, I tried climbing into it and... Um, it's funny, even with the second row in its sort of all the way back position, you literally couldn't even fit a child in there because there is zero gap between the back of the second row and, and the, the footwell. So they've obviously set it up like that so that uh, if you do want someone in the third row, you do have to compromise within second row. Um, one of the big benefits of the Outland PHEV compared to the limited other PHEVs in the segment is that it actually does vehicle to load vehicle to grid and vehicle to home. And that technology is interesting because vehicle to load allows you to power things from the car. So it has two power outlets inside that allow you to have up to 1500 watts. Uh, it is less than something like a Kia EV6 or an Ionic 5 that do up to 3.6 kilowatts. But the upshot is that uh, out, of the, uh, out of the two charging ports, one of them is a, a Chatamo plug, which is a Japanese standard plug that actually allows you to do uh, vehicle to grid and vehicle to home. Uh, depending on which one you pick, one will supply energy to the grid uh, via your car's battery and the other will supply energy to your home via the car's battery up to uh, 10 kilowatts. So hmm. it's an interesting concept and it kind of takes it from being a mode of transport through to something that can actually uh, be integrated within your home life. So you said it's got a, a bigger battery. Is it physically bigger? Does it take up more space in the cabin? Uh, look, it does take up a little bit more space, but it's more the energy density that's improved. So you can notice on the floor where parts of the battery protrude ever so slightly, but they were able to integrate the seven seats by moving the inverter uh, beneath the second row. So it means it's afforded them a little bit of extra space. It's quite a fascinating setup because it uses a naturally aspirated 2.4 litre internal combustion engine as a, a generator effectively. But according to Mitsubishi, it speeds above around 70 k's an hour. That 2.4 litre engine can actually directly drive the front wheels. So that, they say that it's actually more efficient for that to happen than for the car to be um, sort of driving the wheels through the batteries because at speeds below 70, you're actually just driving the wheels through uh, the electric motors on the on the front and rear axle. And then as it needs more uh, voltage, it runs the internal combustion engine that powers an inverter and increases the voltage. So uh, it's, it's a really fascinating setup. Uh, you can use the internal combustion engine to charge the battery. You can use it to hold charge. You can even use the internal combustion engine to keep uh, I guess, the, the battery running. And the advantage of that is if, um, if there's a power outage, for example, and you're using the, uh, the vehicle to power your home, using vehicle to home, it can then just run the internal combustion engine to keep your home running during a power outage. So it's a really interesting concept. And I think when you look at it as a value for money proposition, when you look at everything the car can do, it's actually not too bad. So, Paul, you've driven a few plug-in hybrid SUVs um, in this segment now, and Mitsubishi's obviously been at this for a lot longer than most rivals. Does Mitsubishi still stand ahead of the likes of MG and Ford in terms of refinement and that transition between petrol and electric power? Yes, definitely. Um, if, if I compare it to uh, what was the last one I drove, the last one I drove was the Kia Sorento plug-in hybrid. Probably one of the worst plug-in hybrids on the market. It doesn't allow the vehicle to drive on electric power alone all that long. And then when it does kick over the internal combustion engine, 
it it is the thrashiest thing you've ever heard because it is using a tiny little engine to get the car moving. Then it's affected by handling because it's no longer really all that well balanced, whereas the Outlander feels like it's been built from the ground up as a plug-in hybrid. And as a result of that, it's actually incredibly dynamic and far more dynamic than I thought it would be. They've integrated some of the tech that they use within uh, or the previous generation of Evo rally cars, the super active wheel control. To, to basically uh, allow it to, to tuck in more through corners by breaking wheels. Uh, and then it just has a lot of punch out of corners as well, thanks to those electric motors. So it is a pretty awesome setup. And, and I think that they've nailed it as a, as a package in terms of the PHEV components, but also the way that it drives and handles as well. So what sort of range are we talking, Paul? So it's about 80 kilometres worth of driving range. When that does run out, it can run as a hybrid and it runs as a hybrid by uh, charging and discharging the battery. The battery actually always has around 20% capacity in it, even if the car says that it's empty. And that is so that you do get that power boost when you get stuck into it. There's never a point where the battery is actually dead flat. Uh, in addition to that, you've also got a towing capacity of 1,600 kilos. Uh, but when it when the battery is flat and it's running as a hybrid, the economy is 6.7 litres per 100k. So it's good but not amazing because you are lugging around all of this extra weight. Um, so, Paul, one of the um, biggest things that seems to be a point of discussion with plug-in hybrids, particularly on our reviews on the site, is that you know once you run out of EV power or whatever, the, the, the car's basically useless because you're lugging around batteries and, you know, the petrol engine may not be designed to handle long distance freeway driving and things like that. You obviously went the extra mile quite literally and drove from Adelaide to Melbourne in, in the Outlander plug-in hybrid after the launch. How did it handle that kind of a trip? And is it did it sort of change your view on how these cars can stack up as, you know, an everything car for more people? Um, yeah, we, this one certainly we did go the extra mile because we did the launch in Adelaide. Then I drove it from Adelaide back to Melbourne. It then spent a day at the proving ground where it, it copped a fair hammering there as well. And uh, it, it really, it, it was impressive to me because the highway drive showed that it does work effectively as as a hybrid. And, and I was hitting six point seven liters per one hundred k's for that entire highway drive, which. I think it's a pretty good figure. It's nothing amazing, but given that you have the compromise of all the added weight, it, it isn't too bad. And it is worth noting as well that uh, I stopped at Horsham, which was along the way to charge the car. So it has a Chatamo plug. I charged it um, while I was having lunch. Uh, that delivers 38 kilowatts of DC energy into the battery. And, and that gave me an extra 80 kilometers of zero emission driving effectively. So um yeah, I, I think it is. It's it's a really good compromise for those who do still travel long distances because if you do the inner city stuff like most people do, it's going to be great just as an EV. But then if you do want the occasional long distance drive, there's nothing to think about. You literally just hit the road, fuel it up, and, and away you go. Sort of zero thought involved. And how's the ride quality? Because I know the last Outlander Fev that I drove, the previous generation model, was not the most <laughs> compliant ride, um, and. Outlander models of the new generation with the larger wheels can be a bit kind of flinty. So how was it in terms of comfort? Yeah, I, I found that with the extra weight that it actually feels a bit more settled. Um, it's Yeah, it's interesting because we, we did go for a faster drive at the Proving Ground. It really just 
it it was soft enough to to sort of uh, be easy to throw around, but it, but it wasn't over the top in terms of the firmness on the low profile tires. So I think they've actually done a good job with the ride there and and working it out. It could be better, but um, ultimately, I think that uh, that's one thing they can eventually uh, sort of sort out for those that don't love it. But I think the rest of the package sort of makes up for it. Has there been a, an improvement on the interior? Look, the interior um, is basically identical to the standard Outlander. The only difference being there's two extra buttons, uh, one for the uh, EV mode and one for their version of single pedal driving, which really doesn't work that well because it gets to uh, 20 kilometres an hour when it's slowing down and and it becomes two pedal driving because if you don't activate the second pedal, which is the brake, it will just keep going. So it seems kind of pointless. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think that needs to be fixed. But outside of that, it looks and feels just like any other Outlander, which I think is the the big win here. It doesn't look like a science project, aside from the standard design. (laughs) What are the price differences between just the standard Outlander and the the PHF? So it depends which one you go for, but the price difference can be up to $17,000 between a sort of standard one and a plug-in hybrid. So it is a big old step up, but even at the top spec XC Tourer, 68 grand, I mean, there are more expensive cars in this segment. I think the um, Sorento plug-in hybrid is obviously a bigger car, but that was significantly more expensive. And I think to me, the the sweet spot in the range is actually the Aspire, which is sixty or just under $61,000. So that's probably the one that I'd be going for. Is it relatively affordable to service? Yeah, the service, um, Mitsubishi has a 10-year warranty on these and you can uh, basically see the servicing schedule for for 10 years and it does sort of uh, peak uh, throughout the sort of service schedule but for the most part it's about $299 per visit and that's once a year Uh, and it's worth calling out as well that if you do service it through them, you get a 10-year warranty for the car and an eight-year warranty for the battery. So it's almost like a bit of a no-brainer to just service it with Mitsubishi and take advantage of it. Yeah. Well, you've given it a car expert rating of 8.2 and you can read that review now. We'll let you go and jump back into your Tesla Model Y, brand new one, I should say, Paul. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Mandy. SUV coupes, love them or hate them, they are here to stay. And Havel has been the latest brand to jump into this fad with the H6 GT, which you've driven, J-Wo. Are you a fan of this style SUV? Uh, short answer, no, not normal. <laughs> um, it's, it, I remember when the first BMW X6 came out and, I, you know, obviously I was a big Jeremy Clarkson fan, so I just thought whatever Jeremy Clarkson thought. But then, you know, once other brands started coming out with them too, I was like, oh, I don't know. They feel, they, I find that because normally you associate that kind of roof line with a passenger car that's quite low to the ground and, you know, they've got smittier bumpers and stuff. So I find that they look kind of tall and bottom heavy and a little bit awkward for this that's just to my eye um, I'm normally associated with having great taste but not everyone agrees <laughs> will so um, you know it's they're not generally my kind of thing but I also understand that a lot of people like them because they they stand out they you know they, they cut a line in traffic and, and some of the more out there examples uh, definitely are quite desirable you think of something like a Lamborghini Urus and that sort of comes together quite well but mm. um, yeah they're, they're typically not my kind of thing let me be clear for the record, they're not my type of thing either. Oh God, <laughs> I would not great. have asperations cast on me as <laughs> being a SUV fan. We haven't agreed on a design thing in a very long time, Will. Yeah, this is nice. I like bring this. us together. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I think it's better looking than the BMW X4. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, the, the, the H6 GT doesn't look half bad. It's one of the hmm. better um, interpretations of this design um, trend, I guess. And I, the, I think the main thing that's really cool about it is that it's not $100 million compared to some of the, the luxury branded ones. So within the mainstream segment, you know, this car would be classified as a midsize SUV. Within the midsize segment, at least from a mainstream perspective, there are no direct competitors. The closest thing that you can get to an H6 GT from another manufacturer at this price point is the Renault Arcana, which is technically a small SUV and it's, um, you know, based on the some something like a captor or a clear it's sort of been extended a little bit and you know rejigged but it's all the same sort of engines and things like that so they're the really two you know sub 40 50 grand options that you have at this end of the market with that kind of roof line and you know Havel has been making big strides in terms of volume lately we've seen their latest generation of product is a, a huge step forward compared to some of the old stuff that they they brought out when I was much younger and barely started out as a journalist so I feel like I followed this brand's progression through our market quite closely. And, you know, the, the H6 GT is a, a pretty well-sorted thing when you look at it on paper. It takes all the great parts of the normal H6 SUV, including, you know, a really spacious interior, um, really cool design, uh, and, and a big amount of standard equipment for the money. Um, and then obviously brings it all together in a, an aesthetically striking package. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, and depending on the, the color that you get it in, you, some, you can get bright yellowy green um, brake calipers. Um, so if you see oh. some of the images on the website and in, in uh, my review, I, I think they might be uploaded to the gallery as well. There's a, there's a crayon gray example, which, you know, is maybe a nod to Porsche or a, a straight <laughs> oh ripoff. I don't know. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. But, uh, with and with that color and with the white color, you get green brake calipers. So if you perhaps look for images of the Porsche Cayenne GT Coupe, um, you might find that it's almost an identical color scheme. But you know, horses for courses. <laughs> so, what do you actually get with the H6 GT over the comparable H6 wagon? Uh, not a whole lot. <laughs> one of the there were a couple of things that were meant to be key upgrades over the normal one, which were sports seats or bucket seats and, and Brembo brakes. Neither of those made it to our market, unfortunately. There seemed to be a miscommunication between head office and the local division here in Australia. Um, so really, the main differences are obviously the the design, um, and then you can you get different tires. So they they, they put on Michelin um, performance tires, which are meant to give you a little bit. More more grip and it's got an exhaust sound booster which sounds like a really silly naff thing but um paul and i managed to discover that if you put this in sport or race mode it just seems like it opens up a whole new hole in the exhaust and it sounds like an angry hot hatch it was actually quite funny if you, yeah if you check um car expert or, or paul's socials um there's a video where he gets me to rev it while it's in race mode and it's it's actually quite laughable how good it sounds and on the way back from Lang Lang, I, a couple of roundabouts, I would put it in race and then use the paddles. And it's actually a bit of fun. To, to, it's just it felt really stupid, but it's, you know, that's something. Why do you need a race mode in something like that? I don't know. But hey, if it's fun, that's all that matters, right? Exactly right. 
Well, that's uh, a good follow-up yeah. question. Is it actually fun to drive? Because you mentioned there's effectively no mechanical differences between this and the wagon. So Yeah, so when you're not in race mode, it drives very much like a normal H6, which, you know, the the, the H6 in its standard tune is quite a comfort-focused SUV. It's quite soft in the suspension. The controls are very light and fluid. So, you know, it's it you can pilot it quite accurately, but you don't, doesn't really ignite the sensors or, you know, you don't get a whole lot of um, communication and feedback through all the driver controls. So, you know, you're cruising on the highway at 100, 110, and it's actually a very nice, comfortable, quiet place to be. Um, The main issues that I have with the H6 GT are are pretty consistent with the issues that I had with the normal H6, uh, that the driver assist systems need another maybe layer of polish or refinement because some of them – just bing and bong at you incessantly, which is really, really frustrating and um, really just it, 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 to the point where you just end up turning them off. Um, and the dual clutch transmission that Havel uses, it's a seven-speed unit, which I believe is a dry clutch type, and it's just really, really clumsy at low speeds. The stuff that we used to hear about old like Volkswagen dual clutch ones where they, you know, low speed hesitation, like this is not just hesitation, this is snoozing at the wheel almost. Like if you mm. if you have it at the lights and the stop-start system engages and then you come off the brake and then you press the accelerator to go, it almost holds the vehicle in, you know, handbrake or park mode for a little bit and you hear it like building revs and then suddenly it just releases and lets you go. And that can take, you know, a second or so, which is A, not the best feeling if you have to do something in a rush. But also it just sounds like the transmission's slurring a little bit and it's just not really refined or particularly pleasant. So, you know, some people will just default to turning that the stop start off um, to avoid that feeling. But at the same time, you know, I try to leave as many of those sort of things on because that's how the vehicle was designed to be used. And so, you know, if you're constantly having to adjust things and, and, and make changes for thing, basic things like that, that should sort of be ironed out in the development process, it's a little bit disappointing. And the, the one that we had was the Ultra, which is the top spec model. So that's, you know, 46, 990 or thereabouts drive away. It is an affordable SUV coupe, you know, by relative terms, but that's not an insignificant amount of money to be spending on a car that has some, for me, almost deal-breaking drivability and usability problems. Um, So... Look, the, the, overall, it's a it's a decent enough package. It's not like a, a few years ago where you'd say absolutely under no circumstances should you buy some of these cheaper things unless you're absolutely desperate to get into a new car. As we've seen with a lot of the Chinese brands, they've come a long way in a very, very short space of time. And a lot of them are, are targeting export markets like Europe. And if you're trying to make it big in Europe, it means that there's a lot of work that goes into that. So, generally it comes out in the product um so there is a little bit of a way to go i feel there's a few little you know kinks and stuff that they need to iron out particularly with the drivetrain and the driver assistance systems but otherwise you know it's it's still not and it's still impressive in a lot of ways um one of the things that really stuck out to me was the back seat normally these kind of vehicles with the sloping roof line uh can be quite compromised in terms of headroom this thing is huge like it's still oh, wow. it's still roomier than a lot of normal shaped SUVs in the back. I could easily sit behind myself, and so could some taller colleagues. So there's still some really good points about this car. So you've touched on some of the things that really bother me um, about the H6 when I've driven it before. Uh, that 
creeping through traffic with that dual clutch is, is painful. Um, I also, from a dynamic point of view, I hate the steering wheel. Um, and I've always found that the front wheel drive models have just a little bit too much wheel spin for my liking. But my biggest problem with the H6 uh, outside of dynamics is the infotainment system. Now, how mm. did you like the infotainment system? I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it just feels like a, an afterthought the screen's beautiful so in the ultra you get this wonderful 12 and a quarter inch um high resolution display but the native software leaves a little bit to be desired because the menu is a little bit confusing and some of the the labels and the you know the line items seem like they've just been directly translated from mandarin they haven't really made it a super logical you know way through which you know this will this will come with time um but you know trying to set the clock for example is really difficult because it obviously does it doesn't have native satellite navigation so you can't use a gps <laughs> signal to set the time zone mm. for example and there are some other ones there are some other controls for like the driver assist systems where the labels don't really translate to what you're looking for even though that's it is what you're looking for um and a lot of the some functions like the idle stop start control as well as the um, air conditioning are all accessed via the touchscreen, but there's no quick shortcut to it if you're using smartphone mirroring so you have to like swipe back through to select Havel and go back to the native system, adjust the temperature. And that's even for like the recirculation function. So there's a few like silly things like that where there's just that, that last step in the thought and the development that could have been fixed better. Um, will correctly touched on the steering wheel and that sort of for me extends to the driving position. I cannot get comfortable in this car and maybe I'm oddly proportioned or – you know, it just wasn't designed for someone my size, but you can't, I like to sit with the, the seat quite low, but then the seat base is really flat and the wheel almost points up at the sky. So you, you sort of struggle to sit low in the car without having to sort of, and you can't bring the um, the base cushion up in terms of the angle. So you, you can either be really low and flat, but no under thigh support and with the steering wheel pointing up, or you can sort of bring it a bit higher, but then you're sort of hitting the roof. And it, especially in this car, which is meant to be the sporty one, um, it doesn't necessarily feel that sporty if your hair is touching the roof. So I think the um, it's a shame that Havel Australia hasn't brought the hybrid drivetrain that's available in the SUV for the coupe, even though it's available in China, because I think that is a actually a really impressive drivetrain. And it was something that I noted in uh, my comparison between the H6 hybrid and the RAV4 hybrid, and that it's, you know, quite a nice driving sophisticated system and, you know, addresses a lot of the issues that we have with the standard powertrain. Um, but yeah, look, the, the H6 GT, I don't know if it's worth the four and a half or so thousand dollar upspend over the standard one. I think that if you're going to get the H6, you probably go for like a mid level one, or maybe like if you're going to get the Ultra, you get the Ultra front wheel drive, which is about five or six. It, it, you can get it for about forty grand drive away if you if you absolutely want the top spec one. Um, but uh, the yeah, it it this for me. I, I find the stuff that I didn't like about the H six for me personally would be a deal breaker. The tech and some of the the drive drivability niggles for me were were really big issues because that's just how I am. I think some people would you know be okay with it and be able to because you come from a much older car. For example, I feel like a lot of budget buyers come from much older cars and so you know it, it wows you with the pretty screens and it's really it seems nicely made and um it feels like you get a lot of car for your money so i can understand why people might be able to see past some very minor you know some of these minor quirks but yeah for me personally it was it was just a little bit jarring 
Okay. Well, you've given it a car expert rating of 7.9. The written and the video review is at the site now, so go check it out. So, Jaywo, where is the car expert team off to next week? Uh, well, Mike Costello will be heading to Sydney to drive the all-new Skoda Fabia as well as the facelifted Skoda Karok. They're both pretty um, hotly anticipated cars that we've been waiting to get behind the wheel of for a while. And we also have the National EV Summit in Canberra with uh, no name allocated to that yet. So I wonder, I don't know if someone's going to be getting a last-minute call up to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, two pretty interesting events on very different sides of the spectrum. <laughs> Extremely. Um, and our garage for next week as well, Will. So we've mentioned the hot hatches that we've got through the Melbourne and Brisbane garages this week. Um, but in addition to those, uh, we're going through the range of range. So uh, we'll have an XL Basie this week down in Melbourne. Um, we're also going to have the facelifted Volkswagen Tiguan Allspace in 147 TDI Elegant spec. Uh, so probably one of the exact ones I drove at the launch. And also an oldie, but is it still a goodie, the Mazda CX-3 in Akari all-wheel drive spec. So towards the top of the range there. Oh, fantastic. Actually, you just um, reminded me of something, Joel, when you mentioned uh, national. I discovered something really cool today called the Nugget Nationals. Have you guys heard of it? I feel like I have, but uh, you might have to refresh my memory because I might have the wrong idea. <laughs> <laughs> so Nugget Nationals is designed for slow cars to go around a racetrack fast. Ah, uh, so is that like the shitbox rally? Excuse my French. Sort of, yeah, basically, but they're better condition cars. So <laughs> the regulations are it has to be 3000 the value of the car has to be $3,000 or under, Yeah, and it has to be, I think, below 1,500cc and naturally aspirated car. Oh, that sounds like And so obviously roadworthy conditions. So um, planning to take my up to Winton in October because that's when the next meet is. I love that. That would be so much fun. That would know. be a lot of fun. I know. Right, like they get like Hyundai XLs and Mazda three two threes, Daihatsu's, like all those old nineties and noughties cars. It's so yes. weird that you mentioned that because my one one of my old bosses uh, at a job I used to work at, her son races an old Hyundai XL at Queensland Raceway. Um, oh. It's like I, I don't know if it's like a little like league of of XLs that race each other, but you know, Isn't there's that, that where Emily Duggan started her racing JO. Do you know? I think that's where she. Yeah, there is an Excel racing series and yeah, Emily Duggan does that. And I know there's a few people that sort of do that one. It's kind of like a mix of professional or pro-am drivers and, you know, enthusiasts. Mm. Um, I think it can get a little bit hairy on those races as well because, <laughs> except, you know, an, X, an XL road car was normally beat up. So you can imagine what racing does to these things, but oh, they, they God, keep yes. on kicking little bubble cars. I remember them. That's like my childhood, Those seeing those things oh. around in the late 90s. I think we all knew somebody who had them and, and I think we all know that there's sometimes nothing more fun than driving a slow car fast. So, actually, I want to go know, check out right? these these XLs being put through their paces. And you do actually still seem to see a, a few of those generations still around. So, it makes me wonder, you know, our MG3 is going to hold up as well? Will there be like a little MG3 competition in, in 10, 20 years? I don't know. Yeah. Well, there is well, a Kia it- Picanto racing series as well. <gasps> is there really? Yeah. Our friend Melissa Ong is all over the Kia stuff and she once highlighted to me that there's a there's a Kia Picanto racing league and it looks so funny. Oh, it would. Because <laughs> they're tiny and tall. They're hilarious yeah. looking cars. Exactly. They look like Mario Kart. They do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's been a pleasure. James Wong and William Stopford, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mandy.